The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Thank you, Father, for inviting us into your presence, for the power of your word, for the truth of the songs we've sung, for the time of prayer and being together as Christ's body, knowing that you are with us. Your spirit is working. Lord, to conform us into the image of Jesus. So as a result, by your grace, cause us to know your love and to love you all the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Acts chapter 6 ends with something that we're growing accustomed to seeing as Stephen is seized And brought before the council with false witnesses. They accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and God, against the temple and the law. And chapter 7 is Stephen's response. And it's interesting that instead of giving them some direct answers to their accusations, he basically preaches a sermon about their history. Why does he do this? What's his point? How is this an answer to the charges made against him? We're going we're gonna to fly over the entire chapter, chapter 7, to find out. But we're going to begin in Acts 6 and verse 8. So go ahead and turn uh, in your Bibles there. We left off with... a. Remember a division over the lack of care being given to the widows of the Hellenistic believers. And the solution was to pick seven godly men. And Stephen is the first name mentioned. Stephen is doing great signs and wonders. And apparently he was debating unbelieving Jews in the synagogue. That's that's what's going on here. So if you remember... The early church at this time is primarily made up of Jews. And the division that we saw earlier was between the Jews of a Hebrew tradition and those who were Hellenists or uh, Jews, diaspora Jews. Those who were scattered and settled throughout Mesopotamia and took on those various cultures with Greek being the, the primary language. Now, in our text, there's reference to the synagogue of the freedmen. And what that is, in in 63 BC, Pompey imprisoned and enslaved many Jews. And in their, their liberated descendants formed these Hellenistic synagogues as an expression of thanksgiving for their freedom. And thus, the synagogue of the freedmen. So keep in mind that early on in Acts, we don't see Christians calling themselves Christians. They still would have thought of themselves as Jews. And of course, as Jews, they would continue to go to synagogue, where they'd hear God's word being taught. And we read in chapter 3, they continued not only to go to synagogue, they'd, they'd go to the temple for daily prayers. But because of their understanding of Jesus' death, 
being the final atoning sacrifice, there would have been some, there would have been great disagreement. A lack of participation by these uh, early believers in the ongoing temple sacrifices. So Stephen is, of course, continuing to be a part of the synagogue, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish beliefs. And with eyes wide open to the truth, he points this out and he bests them in debate. Some have speculated that Paul, or at that time Saul of Tarsus, may have been a part of this very synagogue. And that if he was one incapable of withstanding Stephen's wisdom, this may explain some of the rage that he had toward early Christians. Stephen apparently wiped the floor with them. And again, like the apostles, like Jesus, this uneducated nobody embarrasses trained scholars. And instead of these scholars humbly desiring to know the truth, they arrogantly assume they can't. Of course they can't be wrong. But they're so embarrassed and outraged and prideful, the only way they can deal with it is to twist Stephen's words into what the people and the elders consider to be blasphemous. So do you see a pattern here? It's what happened with Jesus. It's what's been happening with the apostles and now with Stephen. So follow along as I read. I'm just going to read this first portion together. And then we'll go through chapter 7, this first portion, uh, chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And uh, it goes like this. Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. Okay, so Stephen was already wiping the floor with them. They couldn't withstand his wisdom. And now, as he gives an answer to their twisted accusations, his face is described as like the face of an angel. 
And this doesn't mean that his face was chubby and cute. Um, it apparently began to shine. When angels appear, what do people do? <laughs> they tend to fall on their faces because being in the presence of God, these heavenly beings shine. They shine because they reflect the glory of God. So what does this say about Stephen? Also, who else is described as having a shiny face? Ironically, it's the one they're saying that he's blaspheming, Moses. When Moses was in the presence of God, his face shined to the point of him wearing a veil. And speaking of shining glory... It's possible that Saul was at this meeting. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, a companion to Luke, who wrote this and would, uh, would give him this inside account what happened behind closed doors. And if this is so, listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 with this theme of shining faces. And how it relates to the passing glory of the law and the greater glory of the gospel. If he was there, how could he not think of Stephen's face as he wrote, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory. They're, they are making accusations. Accusations involved what they thought was the glorious, untouchable identity of their Jewishness. This holy place, the, the temple was their pride and glory, their history and connection with Moses, the lawgiver. They accuse Stephen of speaking against this, and that Jesus will destroy this place and their customs associated with Moses and the law. And when I hear this, I think, I can see how they'd think that. Yes, they're twisting the truth, but it gives us a sense of the debate, doesn't it? To them, the temple was synonymous to the glory of God's presence. It began with the, with the tabernacle in the wilderness, a big tent that they could take with them. And so, God was with them. And then, with the land, they wanted something more permanent, a temple instead of a tabernacle. And the temple that now stood under Herod, it was glorious, covered with gold and gleaming as the sun reflected upon it, kind of like Stephen's face, reflecting the glory of God's Son. 
So in their minds, when Stephen speaks against the temple, he speaks against God's dwelling place and their glory. And yet, you can imagine what Stephen was likely arguing, can't you? Jesus is God incarnate, the promised Messiah. God himself who dwelt or tabernacled among us in the flesh. And at Jesus' crucifixion, the giant curtain of the temple separating people from the most holy place of God's presence, it was torn from top to bottom. You can imagine Stephen arguing that Jesus, Jesus is the true and better temple. And that he poured out the Holy Spirit who indwells all who believe in Jesus. God's presence is not a place. It's not a land. And his glory is the righteousness of Christ and not the law. So there's a sense in which I read their accusations and think, of course he would have wanted to tell them that the glory of the temple has come to an end. That Jesus is a surpassing glory. The prophet Moses, that, that the prophet Moses spoke of. A greater Moses. A righteousness that far exceeds the passing glory of the law. Can't you see the misunderstanding here? As Stephen is full of the Spirit and sees the, the pieces of their history and heritage fitting together... And that Christianity is not some new religion, but it's actually true Judaism. And so, of course, he's going to be in the synagogue telling his fellow Jews. But they're so wrapped up in their own glory, unwilling to see anything beyond the types and shadows that were only meant to point to a greater reality of God's presence. The temple was patterned after the heavenly reality of God's throne room where Jesus ascended to, right? And now, as those indwelt by the Spirit, as those who are, who are in Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly place. So why on earth would we want a temple a type and shadow that existed to communicate what's come to be in Jesus. Chapter 7 is Stephen's answer to their accusations. So let's take a look. A lot of reading this morning. Begin with uh, chapter 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from, from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give, give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. 
And after that, they shall come out and worship, worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Okay, so there's a lot of things. Think about it. He begins with Abraham. There's a lot of things he could have said about Abraham. Why does he say this? What is his emphasis here? Well, first, what he emphasizes is that God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, verse 2. Now, when we read Genesis, the impression that you get is that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Haran. But Stephen says God appeared before then. Okay, why does this matter? What's his point? The point is, God is God of the whole world. He's not simply the God of some limited geographical place like the land of Israel. Stephen begins by making the point that God revealed his glory to Abraham first when he was far away in Mesopotamia. A second emphasis is that God himself, the God of glory, appeared to Abraham. In Genesis, we're told that God spoke to Abraham. And so Stephen is making it clear that God wasn't limited to their holy land, calling Abraham from Mount Zion, wanting him to come on over to the holy place in Palestine, No, in all his glory, God appeared to him in Mesopotamia. And as a result of that revelation, Abraham set out on a journey. And then a third emphasis Stephen is making is that Abraham remained a pilgrim even in Canaan. He didn't own, it says, even a foot's length. Abraham remained a pilgrim in the land that God was giving as an inheritance. The land where the people eventually settled and built a temple. Stephen is pointing out that these leaders were too settled. Too much at home in the land. They forgot as wonderful a blessing the land was. They should have been pilgrims. They should have had a pilgrim mindset. That it's God. It's God that we want. It's not the land. It's God. It's not some place or a temple. He's the blessing. When we read this of Abraham in the book of Hebrews, that he, he wasn't looking for an earthly city, but to the city with foundations, the heavenly city, whose architect and builder is God. Here's the problem with these religious leaders. They stopped looking forward. They were only looking back, living in the glory of the past, content with types and shadows instead of the actual blessing of God. After Abraham, Stephen then tells the story of Joseph in verses 9 through 16. And the emphasis here is that Joseph was mistreated by his brothers. They were jealous as the religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. Joseph is meant to remind them of Jesus. And the fact that all throughout their history, the Jewish people persecuted 
and killed the prophets that were sent to them. And Jesus himself made this point to them in the parable of the tenants. Remember that? The story of the master who planted a vineyard and then leased it to tenants, then sending various servants for the harvest, whom the tenants did what? They continually beat and killed them. Sending, then the landowner sends eventually his own son, thinking, well, surely they'll respect him. But they kill him also. And then after Jesus tells the story to the religious leaders, Jesus asks them, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's interesting that there are Not owners of the land, but tenants. And that the kingdom is taken from them and given to people producing its fruits. The land, the land has become their identity, their pride. They're acting like owners instead of tenants or pilgrims. And the result is the transition that we're approaching in Acts as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Now, in verses 17 to 43, Stephen finally answers their main complaint having to do with Moses, the one through whom God had given the law. They were all about the law. And in their minds, Moses was synonymous with the law. In verses 17 through 29, Stephen continues. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born And he was beautiful in God's sight. And I just think Stephen's telling this to them with apparently a glowing face. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation, salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Okay, the first point of emphasis is, again, Moses was rejected by the Jewish people. They have this tendency with God's deliverers, his saviors that he sends to them. Just like Moses, just like Jesus, brothers rejecting God's saviors. In verse 35, he makes the point that Moses was the deliverer, God's savior to his people. The time had come. He was uniquely qualified, taken in and educated as an Egyptian, now identifying with his people, maybe even aware of God's promise in Genesis 15 that there would be affliction for 400 years. And now thinking been 400 years. It's time. The years are up and Moses must have thought, I'm the deliverer. I'll take a stand against injustice. Come on, follow me. And they reject him. And Moses flees to Midian. Stephen breaks up this, these, this telling of Moses into these 40-year chunks. 40 years Then 40 years in the wilderness. From verse 30 we read, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. So a second point that Stephen makes is that God appeared to Moses, where? When he was in Midian. It's the same point he made with Abraham's story. God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, or Gentile territory. Now, once again, he appears in the Gentile land of Midian to Moses. And what did God say? Take off the sandals from your feet. For the place, this Gentile place, is holy ground. And it's not holy because of the place, because of the land. It's holy because God is there. Do you wonder if the Sanhedrin are starting to get his point? And their teeth are starting to grind? Stephen is saying... You think you have some kind of claim on God bottled up in your temple as if the temple or the land or the customs 
are inherently holy. As if the Jewish people are what's holy. No, God is holy. His presence makes whatever He touches holy. It's not the other way around. Do you think you have some kind of hold on God that that makes Him yours and not the God of the Gentiles as well? You boast in land and in the temple, in the law and your traditions. But if you were truly faithful to these and guided by the scriptures, you would know that God is the God of all people. And that the amazing privilege given to us are for the sake of being witnesses to them. Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. Pentecost is the coming together of the nations in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. That everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus commissions his apostles to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. And the gospel is spreading to all people. One of the accusations against Stephen was... We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And beginning at verse 37, Stephen is in essence saying, Don't you know your own history? You're the ones. You're the ones who rejected God by rejecting Moses. Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship him, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. A third point is that Moses was rejected again. After the exodus. And their rejection of Moses was a rejection of God and his law. And what what did they do as Moses was receiving God's law? By their own hands they made an idol, a golden calf. And it's a significant phrase that Stephen repeats. By the works of their hands. By the works of their hands, they fashioned an idol. It's significant because Stephen repeats it in verse 48. 
But this time, instead of applying it to a golden calf, he applies it to a house. Let's read beginning with verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen compares the wilderness tabernacle, which was not glorious, with the great temple of Herod. The tabernacle was a traveling tent made of skins. Not particularly spectacular from a human point of view. But the key is, God was there. God could be found there. So in contrast, contrast this with Herod's temple. A temple covered in gold. The implied question is, was God there? Stephen's, you know, some might think he's he's criticizing the building of the temple and it should have just always been the tabernacle. I don't think that's the case. He's not criticizing that. Instead, what he is saying is that it's time, the time of the temple has passed. Its time has passed. God is not there. And that if you truly want the blessing of God's presence, it's through Jesus. Jesus has ascended. Remember, the tabernacle is patterned after the heavenly throne room. It was a type, it was a picture of that. And Jesus, the king, has ascended. The work is finished. And heaven is his throne. And Stephen is is also calling this existing temple an idol. The tabernacle was a tent made of skin, and Jesus tabernacled among us. And Isaiah says that Jesus that, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, however plain he was to look at, What is Jesus? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Contrast this with a a gleaming temple described in verse 48 as being made by human hands. Glorious in appearance, but God is not there. What else does Stephen say is gold? And made by human hands. An idol that the people worshipped instead of the one true God. So who's blaspheming Moses and God? Who's speaking against the holy place and God's righteousness? Here's how Stephen 
sums up his sermon, saying in very prophet-like fashion, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And oh, oh, wouldn't it have been so great, so wonderful if they were, if they were cut to the heart and humbly saw the truth, if they repented and, and, and saw how Jesus is the fulfillment of, of their history, of all these things, the righteousness of the law. But sadly we read, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Do you remember the description of Stephen at the end of chapter 6? His face glowed. It was the glory of Christ. It was the glory of Christ who was, who was with him in all that he said. And as Stephen faced death, he looks up and there's the Lord. He saw the resurrected Jesus and, and actually said, Look, the heavens are open. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. If you pay attention to details, there's something different about Jesus in this vision. Hebrews 10 tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There were no chairs in the Jewish temple signifying that their work was never finished. These priests made sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice because their sacrifices were only types of Christ's sacrifice. But when Jesus made his sacrifice, he said, it is finished. There's no additional atonement needed for sins. And so our great high priest is seated 
in the heavenlies. But here, Stephen says, Jesus is standing. Why is he standing? One suggestion is that Jesus stood up to receive his martyr, Stephen. And Jesus is always with his people. Especially in their suffering. What did Jesus say to Saul when he blinded him on the road? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is with his people. And so he's standing eager to welcome Stephen home. The other explanation has to do with Matthew 10.32. When Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So could it be that Stephen actually caught a glimpse of this? Of Jesus standing as Stephen's advocate, pleading his case before the Father's throne? I like the thought of this because, well, previously Stephen had only seen an earthly trial. An earthly condemnation. But now he sees the greater heavenly trial where there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is our hope. This is our hope. This is God's grace. A presence A presence better than any earthly temple. The presence of Christ standing with us in every circumstance of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for sending sending us a help and comfort in the Holy Spirit. Thank you that by the Spirit we are able to commune with you. That the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Lord, it's your presence that satisfies our souls. And as the psalmist says, we're like deer panting for flowing streams. We, Lord, we thirst for you, for the living God. And so our time of worship is sweet. Not because of this place but because of your presence, your presence in each believer as we, as we gather like living stones building a spiritual house. So we praise you for fitting us together as a body and for satisfying our souls. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.